I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to episode 50. Today we're going to be talking about three different missing 411 cases that all took place in Colorado. Before we get into the nitty gritty of everything, I wanted to just go over the general information about missing 411. Just for anybody who may be new to paranormal, new to the missing 411 genre, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So Missing 411 is the title of a series of books written by former police officer David Polites that showcase missing persons cases that fit a certain set of criteria. These books came about when David Polites was approached about the unusually large number of people who had disappeared in national parks. There's a whole backstory behind all of that, but it was nearly impossible for him to get any information from the federal government. The federal government is who would handle the missing cases within a national park system. He has a certain set of criteria. Typically in these cases, he found that there was some type of severe weather event that happens during or right after the disappearance. A lot of times this weather event hampers the search and rescue. They often happen in the late afternoon, early evening time frame. If found, alive or dead, the person is typically found in an area that has been searched extensively already. Usually there is a piece of clothing that is missing. A lot of times it's the footwear, like, like hiking boots, that are, are missing. A lot of the cases, there is some type of disability or some type of something that sets the person apart. It could be a high intellect. Typically it's some type of disability. A lot of times scent dogs are brought to the area, but they are unable to find the scent. So they're not able to track the person. So that is some of the criteria. I've covered a few of the missing 411 cases already. They are some of our most popular cases or episodes. They're some of the most popular episodes. So the first one we did was the missing 411 case of Jared Adadero, episode 20. Then we did the missing 411 case of Carl Anders on Mount Shasta, which was episode 31. Then we did the case of Rosemary Kuntz, which was episode 37. Then we have episode 44, which was Tom Messick and Fred Drum. And then today we're going to cover three different cases. 
There was another case I would have included with these, but we already covered it in its own episode. That would be the Jared Adadero case featured in episode 20. Jared was the three-year-old boy that went missing while on a hike with a group of people. Definitely check out that episode if you haven't already. And if you like this episode and you're interested in the topic, definitely check out those other episodes that I mentioned. I also want to start this out by saying, before I get too far into this, the first case here that I'm including is a case from, I believe, 1958. And I ended up finding additional information. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat that it is not really a missing 411 case. And I'm not saying that because David Polites made a mistake or anything. There's new information that has come to light in very recent years and has shed a new light on this whole case. But I wanted to include it because it is included in the Missing 411 books. There is information out there about it being a Missing 411 case. And I was a little surprised when I came upon this other information And I thought I should share this with you so that everybody had the information and knew where it stood in the world of Missing 411. It wasn't just my idea. You know, I asked Kelly and Angelina. Kelly said, yeah, include it. This is the first case that I'm going to talk to you about. The first case we're going to look at is the disappearance of a 10-year-old boy who was attending a boys' camp and St. Malo Retreat, which was a property owned by the Denver Archdiocese. That would be the Catholic Church. In the early 20th century, a man by the, ma- by the name of William McPhee owned the land that is now Camp St. Malo. McPhee was the parishioner of the Cathedral Parish in Denver, and he often allowed the parish to take kids hiking and camping on his property. During one of those trips, several campers saw a meteorite, or shooting star, that had appeared to hit the earth. They went looking for it and came upon the rock that now stands as the foundation of St. Catherine of Siena Chapel. The chapel would not be built until 1935, and only after struggles with the Colorado Highway Department, who wanted to use the rock for road base. St. Catherine of Siena Chapel also referred to as as the chapel on the rock, is what stands visible to this day. William McPhee eventually gave the land to the archdiocese in a gentleman's agreement, and they were able to build St. William's Lodge, which is one of the two remaining buildings on the property. After the camp had been running for several years, a nephew of William McPhee tried to take back the land for financial reasons. The Mallow family then stepped in, bought the property, and gave it back to the archdiocese. At that time, it was renamed Camp St. Malo. From there on out, the Malo family was invested in the property and contributed to many building projects on site. With the help of the Malo family, Camp St. Malo was able to run from 1935 to around 1980. The camp was originally a boys' camp, and then was expanded to include co-ed camps in the 1970s. The counselors at the camp were young men who were attending seminary to enter the priesthood and were experienced outdoorsmen. In 1958, 10-year-old Bobby Bizzup was attending camp 
at Camp St. Malo. Bobby was the son and only child of Master Sergeant Joseph Bizzup and his wife Constance. Bobby had attended camp several times, this time being his fifth visit. Bobby Bizzup was deaf and had been deaf since birth. He wore a hearing aid that only allowed him to hear slightly. He communicated by lip reading and sign language. He did not talk clearly because of his impairment. His speech was worse if he was agitated or excited. Bobby was attending the Catholic summer camp with about a hundred other boys. On Friday, August 15, 1958, Bobby was fishing in Cabin Creek when a counselor went to tell him that it was time for dinner. It was about 6 p.m. Bobby nodded to the counselor, packed up his gear, and followed the counselor towards the resort. The counselor, Terry Cowan, said that he tapped his watch to indicate it was time to pack up and head back, and that Bobby had actually nodded in acknowledgement. Bobby was definitely following behind the counselor when they started out, but when the counselor arrived at the resort, Bobby wasn't there. At 6.30 p.m., a search began. In total, the search included 500 searchers, lasted several days, and covered 16 square miles going up onto Mount Meeker to about 11,000 feet. The search radius was four miles in each direction. Airmen from Lowry Air Force Base, where Master Sergeant Bizup was stationed, came to help, as did men members of the Civil Air Patrol and an Indian tracker, and bloodhounds were flown in from California. The only thing that was found was an ice cream carton he used to hold his bait. It was found a mile from camp on a hillside on Sunday, just two days after he went missing. There are some discrepancies within newspaper accounts. Some say he was fishing alone. Some say he was with a group. Some say his fishing rod and worms were found. Others just mention the carton for bait. Nothing else was found during the search. A helicopter, light plane, and tracking dogs were used in the search. Divers searched the creek, concentrating on beaver dams and deep pools. Cabin Creek isn't very large. It's actually small enough for a boy to step across in areas. The search was called off on August 25th. The day before he disappeared, he wrote a letter home to his parents. It read, I bought an airplane and I paint all over it. The paint is silver and the other is yellow. I pulled two teeth and put them under the pillow. We went to a short hike and came back and went to church. We're going to bed and in the morning we went to church and I was going to fix the bed and I saw under the pillow 25 cents. I said, wow, how come? For my teeth? I caught a chipmunk. It's missing. You give me two papers, please. Love, Bobby. Good luck and lots of kisses. Bobby was wearing a sports shirt, light blue summer jacket, blue jeans, sneakers, and a straw hat the day he disappeared. He was four foot six inches tall and 82 pounds. Some authorities were convinced that Bobby was hiding from searchers, and his own father said that perhaps he thought he was in trouble and hid. There were also reports of boys matching Bobby's description seen in nearby Estes Park, but those sightings turned out not to be Bobby. 
Hunters were told to keep an eye out in October during hunting season, and searches continued until heavy snows came in, but the repeated searches turned up nothing. Then, on June 6, 1959, Bobby Bizzup's remains were found. A group of hikers that included three camp counselors and a group of boys from St. Malo were hiking up Mount Meeker, directly west of the camp, when they, when they came upon a piece of bone and scrap of clothing. Larry Collins, the park employee in charge of the search for the recovery of the remains, said that a gridge search was conducted and they found a cap, clothing, bones, and import, most importantly, a Zenith hearing aid battery case. Most of Bobby's remains were recovered, except for his skull. Authorities concluded the remains were Bobby's and that he died from exposure. The location where the remains were found was about three and a half miles from the location where Bobby was last seen. It was 2,500 feet up in elevation and in a ravine. It was an area that had been searched previously. When asked, Larry Collins said that in the location where Bobby's remains were found, the camp could clearly be seen and it would be unlikely that he was lost. He also said he has never seen anyone lost continue to climb higher and higher in elevation. So how does a deaf 10-year-old boy get lost traveling downhill and downstream to the lodge and then manage to end up three and a half miles up 2,500 feet on Mount Meeker? Sadly, I probably have the answer. Or rather, I have information that lets you guess at what the answer probably is. As I had mentioned, when I started working on this episode, I had my notes on the missing 411 information and researched further by reading newspaper articles from the time of his disappearance. At that point, it was a pretty obvious 411 case. Boy disappears in thin air following a counselor and traveling an easy route downhill to camp. He has a disability, and he remain and his remains turn up in an area previously searched. It hit on several of David Polite's criteria for the missing 411 cases. Then, while working on my notes, I wanted to clarify a couple of pieces of information, and I did one last search about Bobby Bizzup's disappearance, and that's when I came across some answers. Well, like I said, they're really not 100% answers but I'm certain that it explains what happens to him. I don't think that this case is a candidate for missing 411 anymore. In 2020, a local news station in Colorado did a short documentary on the case and revealed some additional information. Neil Hewitt, the camp counselor who found Bobby's remains, was also probably one of the last people to interact with him before he went missing. Everyone knows the the boy out fishing story, who vanished between the creek and camp lodge. But there were other eyewitness accounts from that day, and they placed Bobby at the lodge. Neil Hewitt, the counselor who found the remains, was manning the snack bar, and Bobby wanted to buy some candy. Hewitt told him no, and Bobby got upset. Now that story is relayed by Neil Hewitt, so there's nobody who can refute what exactly the exchange was. That's what Neil Hewitt said the exchange was. Fellow camper Richard Heaster saw Bobby run past him. 
Bobby actually pushed Richard Heaster out of the way as he ran out of the lodge. Richard said that Bobby was yelling something that was unintelligible as he ran out. Remember, Bobby did not speak very clearly, and when he was upset or agitated, that made his speech even harder to understand. Others in the lodge at the same time had similar accounts. These accounts obviously don't match the official account that Bobby disappeared before ever arriving at the lodge. But that isn't really the worst of what I'm going to tell you. It seems that Neil Hewitt, who is now claiming to have spoken to Bobby before he disappeared, and who was the first person in that group to find the remains, went on to become a priest who molested nine boys. In addition to Hewitt, two other camp counselors who were present at the camp when Bobby Bizzup went missing went on to become priests who also molested children. One of them was the most prolific known clergy child predator with over 70 known victims. Also disturbing is that Bobby's remains were found on July 3rd, but the discovery wasn't reported to authorities by Father Heaster, the priest in charge, until three days later on July 6th. Father Heaster is uncle to camper Richard Heaster that was mentioned just a moment ago. Authorities agreed the new information was disturbing and par- the Park Service opened a cold case investigation. I wish I could say that that was it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at this, when a local man saw the news channel's coverage, he came forward with another piece of the puzzle. Bobby Bizzup's skull. It seems that Father Heaster was in possession of the skull, and he gave it to prominent member of the Catholic Church and his longtime close friend, Dr. Joseph McCloskey. Dr. McCloskey died in 1980, and the skull came into possession of his son, Thomas McCloskey. Tom McCloskey said the only thing his dad ever said was the skull belonged to a boy that disappeared from camp. He couldn't remember his dad's exact words, and he was never able to figure out who the boy was until he saw the news documentary. The skull, along with Bobby's remains that were exhumed, are being tested for DNA and examined for any clues as to how he died. No one ever notified the authorities or Bobby's family, letting them know the skull was found. And you just don't do that unless you have some guilt. There's now an ongoing federal investigation. There is no information yet that the results of the DNA testing have been completed or it hasn't been made public knowledge. So I do plan on keeping an eye out for that because I'm curious to see if it shows anything. I apologize for the dark turn that this case ended up taking. It was not my intention. Uh, After some thought and asking for others' opinion on the matter, as I said, I opted to leave this case in this episode just so others could start learning of the new developments on the case and know that it doesn't fit the missing 411 criteria anymore. There's an awful lot of secrecy and lies. They're lies. They're not mistruths. They're just... There's a lot of lies in this case. You don't find somebody's remains and then wait three days to report that you found them. And then when the remains were recovered by the park service, everything is recovered for the most part except the skull. 
and then suddenly you de you determine that the skull actually has been in the possession of private citizens uh, that the apparently the priest in charge had the skull and then gave it to his good friend who kept it in a paper bag in his basement literally that's where he kept it basically it sounds like not just to me but to the investigators because they've reopened the case it's an it's a ongoing investigation it's a cold case investigation the fbi is investigating it's foul play that case doesn't fit the criteria anymore but the next two cases do so let's get into those this next case piqued my interest and it's what brought about this particular episode and these particular cases maurice doc Dometz was born june 24th 1896 he married his wife on june 1st 1930 at the time of his disappearance he had been a pastor for 60 years and married for 51 years maurice Dometz had a phd in theology and had been a professor and dean at Rockmont College, where he taught church history, geology, and archaeology. Doc had crippling arthritis and a severe blood condition. He was able to walk, but needed assistance. He had a lifelong fascination of geology and was something of a rockhound, which isn't hard to believe if he was teaching college courses in the subject. On April 29, 1981, at the age of 84, Maurice Dometz, along with a close family friend, David McSweeney, went out to Pike National Forest to hunt topaz. Doc had been there often rock hunting. The two men went to Topaz Point, which is just below Devil's Head, and parked. It was in between busy seasons, and there wasn't much traffic on the road. David helped Doc out of the car and the two went into the woods about 50 yards on the east side of the road. They found a spot to sit and began hunting. Basically, hunting for topaz consists of sitting and digging a small pit and examining the rocks for signs of topaz. So once he was in a good spot, Doc had no problem sitting and searching. At lunchtime, the two men stopped searching, returned to the car to eat, and then decided to search on the west side of the road. They again went about 50 yards into the woods. Doc needed a little more assistance from David here because there was a steep embankment and he could not traverse on his own. They found a spot and David helped Doc get situated. They were together until about 3 or 3.15 p.m. when David moved about 50 yards from Doc, but still definitely within earshot. David checked on Doc about 3.25 to 3.30 letting him know that they would head back to the car in about 15 minutes and they should start gathering up their tools. Doc had a bag of garden tools that he was using in his topaz hunt and he needed to gather them together. When David returned to help Doc up to the car, Doc was gone. David started calling for Doc but got no reply. David went to see if maybe Doc was at the car, even though he knew there was no way Doc could walk there himself but Doc was not at the car. David honked the horn, then went back to go look for him for about 40 to 50 minutes, 
because there's really no way that Doc could walk anywhere on his own, so he really had to be in the area. That's what David's thinking. He has to be there. Where else would he go? He can't walk away. After searching in vain, David goes back to the car, sees some other people there, and sends them to get help. When the sheriff arrives, he searches the area, and there's no sign that Doc was there other than his small pit. By pit, I mean a hole. Even his cloth bag of gardening tools are missing. There's no signs of a disturbance or a foul play. The search begins and includes dog teams and helicopters. The first dog team was on site at 11.30 p.m. No sign of Maurice Dometz was ever found. No clothing and none of his tools. And that kind of reminds me of the Carl Anders case on Mount Shasta we covered in episode 31. A five-day extensive search was done using grid searches. Notices with photos, description, and reward were posted in the region with no results. The search ended on May 3, 1981. There was no sign of any kind of animal attack. The family friend, David Sweeney, was interrogated, but was cleared of any involvement. The case was turned over to the Douglas County Sheriff's Department, who looked into the possibility Doc was abducted. The family believed he had been abducted. His daughter said he couldn't have disappeared so fast into nowhere. His family was certain he wouldn't get lost because he had spent a lot of time in the area rock hunting, and he knew the area well. Doc was wearing bib overalls, shirt, boots, and white hat at the time he disappeared. His wife sent a letter to appeal to the governor at the time for some type of help, but the governor said that they had done all they could. When David Polites looked into the case as one of his missing 411 cases, the added attention got the case reopened. Still, no sign of Maurice, Doc, Domitz has ever been found. So what the heck happened to Doc Domitz? He didn't walk out of there. He didn't walk anywhere because he was incapable of walking without assistance. This one reminds me of episode 44 and Tom Messick's disappearance while hunting. Also, the movie Cocoon. Excellent movie from 1985 where senior citizens come across alien pods in a swimming pool and swimming in the pool brings back their youth and vitality. I don't want to ruin the ending. Watch it. But these cases with these older seniors disappearing in thin air, it just kind of reminds me of that movie. But you have to watch the movie to understand, and I don't want to ruin it for you. No sign of Doc has been found. I mentioned that this reminded me of Tom Messick's disappearance while he was hunting. The point was made that he had his rifle, he was hunting, his rifle was never found. Rifles don't blow away. They don't disappear. People who are traveling lost in the woods don't continue to carry them with them. They would have put it down, it's heavy. In the case of Doc Dometz, he has a cloth bag with gardening tools in it that he's using in his hunt for topaz. Where is it? That's not hasn't been found either. It disappeared with him. So now we're going to get into this last case that is part of this Colorado cluster. We had Jared Adadero, episode 20. Bobby Bizup, that we've established no longer fits the criteria, 
as it's most likely a case of foul play, and Maurice Doc Domitz. And now we're going to discuss the case of Dr. James McGrogan. Dr. James McGrogan was born November 11, 1974. He was 39 years old and from Chesterton, Indiana, where he worked as an ER doctor at St. Joseph Regional Medical Center. He was married and had two small children, ages 6 and 7. Jim McGrogan was known to be an avid outdoorsman. He was a hiker, camper, canoeer, snowboarder, runner, and competed in triathlons. On March 14, 2014, James Jim McGrogan was in Vail, Colorado for a hiking trip with three other friends. At about 8.30 a.m., the four men set off to hike to Eisman Hut. It was a nine-mile hike on a busy hiking trail. There was a lot of snow in the area, but the trail was so well-traveled that it was compacted and easy to see and travel. Jim McGrogan was well-prepared. With him in his pack, he had cell phone, backup battery, water, food, GPS unit, shovel, first aid, blanket, protective gear, helmet, and a snowboard that was called a splitboard. I saw one thing that mentioned that he had an avalanche beacon with him as well. Around about 10 a.m., the group stopped for a break. Jim McGrogan opted to continue on the trail to scout it out a bit and planned to meet up with his group at the next scheduled stop. The other three men started off not long after Jim McGrogan, but they never caught up with him. Thinking he must have continued on further, they just figured they'd meet up with him at the hut. But when they got there, Jim McGrogan was nowhere to be found. They weren't overly worried at that point because McGrogan was well prepared. They called out his name and searched the area for him, and about 5.30 p.m. after searching for him most of the day, one of the group went back down the mountain to get help. That started a five-day search for Dr. James McGrogan. An 18-square-mile area was searched, from Middle Creek to Booth Creek to behind Bald Mountain. Three helicopters assisted in the search. Two of those were Black Hawk helicopters from the National Guard's High Altitude Aviation Training Site. They flew looking for any sign someone had gone off trail, something that would be easily seen in the snow. But they found no sign that anyone had gone off trail. There were also searchers on foot and on snowmobile. After five days, the weather turned nasty and the search was called off. His three friends were shocked that he was missing at all because the trail was so defined and he was only out of sight for a few minutes. Just 20 days later, hikers found the body of James McGrogan in the Eagle's Nest Wilderness area. He was four and a half air miles away from his last known location. He was found in an area no one expected him to be in, at the bottom of an icefall at the Booth Lake Falls location. To get there, he would have had to go through two gullies and over a 12,000-foot mountain. An icefall is a frozen waterfall that flows down a steep slope, just so we're all on the same page. This area, of course, had been searched. He was found at a 9,950-foot 9, elevation, face down, 
wearing black leggings, shirt and undershirt, and gray socks. He had no coat, no gloves, and interestingly, no boots. He was wearing the helmet. His coat was found in his pack, along with the GPS unit, his cell phone, and backup battery. The coroner turned the phone on, and the phone worked, and he would have had at least two bars of service in the area where he was located. So why didn't he use his phone? The snowboard was also found and returned to the kayak shop that rented it to him. The autopsy revealed that he died from multiple injuries, including head trauma, and his death was ruled accidental. He had a severe head injury, trauma to the left side of his chest, and a broken femur. There were some signs of animal predation after the fact, which would be expected. The manager of the kayak shop where James McGrogan rented his equipment said that they rented him a split snowboard, skins for the snowboard, probe, shovel, beacon, and helmet. They didn't get the probe or the helmet back, or the cover for the beacon. Why didn't he use the beacon? The manager of the kayak shop also said the route he was presumed to have taken wasn't a route normally taken by anyone and was incredibly difficult. He stated he didn't know who or why someone would choose to go that way, and he was baffled about why he didn't have his boots. Also, the GPS unit was operational. So once again, we're left scratching our heads. What the heck happened to Dr. James McGrogan? Why would he willingly and knowingly travel the way he went? The trail he was on heading to the Iceman Hut was very well defined and not at all hard to see or travel because so many people had packed down the snow. There were no signs that anyone went off trail, so how did he manage to get where he ended up without leaving any signs in the deep snow off trail? Snowdrifts would have been measured in feet, in fact somewhere as deep as 30 feet, so how did he manage to get through them? While he was only four and a half air miles from his last location, It's actually more like 12 to 16 miles on foot. It's another mystery. And with that, that's going to do it for this episode of Lurk. You can find episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and always at lurkpodcast.com where you'll find links to all our social media accounts. If you like what we have to offer, please take a moment to give us a five-star review. Those reviews help the podcast be seen by others. Voting is going on now for the top 10 paranormal podcasts for the month of May. You can vote three times per month per email at paranormalitymag.com backslash vote 25. The link is in the show notes. Voting goes from the 21st of one month to the 20th of the other. We have merch at lurkpodcastmerch.com. And don't forget, we'll be at the East Coast Bigfoot Research Organization Convention in Staunton, Virginia, June 18th. So if you're nearby, come by and say hello. And until next time, keep lurking. Keep lurking.